Welcome back to Just FYI Pod. It's Friday, February the 9th. Almost Lent. Almost almost Lent. <laughs> time to celebrate. Time for some penitence. <laughs> right. We've just been sitting here talking about high school girlfriends and <laughs> breakups not and mine. so on. I didn't <laughs> not, not mine either. <laughs> uh, but in any case, uh, in other controversies, I mean, we've had yeah. a, a nice little gossip session yeah, before we, we get going, but none of that will make it to <laughs> no. the podcast. Um, in any case, we're here today. We're we're counting down our top 20 most spiritually significant films of all time. Mm-hmm. Where are we? Number seven. seven. I think. Yeah, yeah, I believe you're correct yeah. on that. Yeah. So we're all the way to number seven. Mm-hmm. The time is getting close. And today yeah. we're talking about a couple of movies. I think, I think kind of considered spiritual classics in general. By anyone. By yeah. anyone. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think people have different feelings about them nonetheless. So yes. what film are you going to discuss today? I'm going to do A Man for All Seasons. Okay. Man mm-hmm. for All Seasons starring mm-hmm. what? Paul Schofield. Schofield. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, what year did that come out again? 1966. 1966. Okay. And I'm doing Martin Scorsese's Silence, which okay. came out in 2016. I guess we can call that a classic now. We'll, we'll talk about it. I think so. To what yeah. extent it merits that title or, right. or how it sort of slots into the Scorsese canon. Yeah. But uh, before we you know, take a quick break and then come back and get started, any news with you? Anything going on? Uh, well, we have some. My son who lives with me is having knee issues and is going to have to surgery. So I've spent a lot of this week like waiting on the phone for people to call me back and right. things like that. And, you know, watching a lot of Madden 2024 being played <laughs> on the TV. <laughs> well, that's a good innocent game. Yeah. At least it's not, you know, Call of Duty. That's or right. Whatever. That's right. It's have you guys best. tried, speaking of movies, have you tried like Mr. Miyagi type stuff on the ligament? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> this, this is going to require surgery for right. sure. Oh, right. definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, that's a bummer. Says. Well, yeah. like you said, at least he's relaxing. <laughs> he's a, yeah. uh, Taking a load off right he, now. Yeah, he takes it in stride. So yeah. <laughs> That's so good. what about you? What's going um, on? Nothing new. I would think I, I was saying earlier, I'm getting ready to get the press kit for my novel, which I will start distributing on social media. And, Man uh, of Pain. Man of Say Pain, a name. novel. I've gotten some nice <laughs> feedback recently from strangers via friends who have sent me screenshots and texts. It's always very encouraging, especially as I've you know, started this other novel now. And, right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so keep plotting along, keep working with uh, in, in various genres, I guess you might say, mm-hmm. and uh, including podcasting. That's right. And you got your other podcast. Too. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> what, I mean, who would have guessed that? I did uh, actually see somebody who was a Facebook friend of mine refer to the book that you talked about on the last. Oh, good. Yeah. What is it? Uh, Death and Immortality. Yeah. And he Yosef said, Peter. I heard about this on a podcast. And he oh, didn't nice. name it though, but I thought, hey, you're listening to there this you go. podcast. It, it's a great book. <laughs> and yes, check out that podcast. It's just FYI Pod Ideas. I'm doing that with my old friend, Clark Elliston. Uh, so we're, you know, we're starting to develop a little bit of a channel here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know just if wait. I can expand much more and keep my sanity. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know how you do this. <laughs> no, well, yeah. I mean, I'm emeritus. Isn't this what you're supposed <laughs> sure, to do? Right. <laughs> um, all right. In any case, uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and we'll jump into A Man for All Seasons, which I watched in psychology class in high school. Really? Psychology? Yeah. Yes. I'll come okay, back to that I maybe. Hear about that. Yeah. All right. We'll be right back. Okay. A Man for All Seasons. And I'm. I'm chuckling a little bit because I just said to Amy, are you ready? And she looked at her notes and sighed and said, I guess. <laughs> so, so buckle up. I, I, it's going to be stimulating. Right. I so guess. so I'll, I'll give you my, just as a jumping off point. Sure. So somebody that comments on my Substack a lot is 
guy named Tommy Norton. He was okay. my high school psychology econ professor oh. teacher and a really wonderful man. And, uh, and I don't, you know, I wish if he listens to this, I don't know if he listens to podcasts, you know, yeah. but, but if he listens to this, he might laugh. I mean, I was an okay student in high school. I was yeah. a good student in high yeah. school, not a great student. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I did really like his class. And mm-hmm. I think I really did well in his classes because I found him to be so um, passionate and engaging mm-hmm. and teaching for him really seemed to, to make a difference, you know? Yeah. Um, definitely didn't go through the motions. But anyway, we watched A Man for All Seasons mm. in his class. Mm-hmm. Now, you asked me, is it because it's about <laughs> somebody who's having mental breakdowns? And I don't really think that was the point. And, I, and if, if I ever do run into Mr. Norton again, I'll have to ask him, why did we watch yeah. A Man for All Seasons? But I do remember liking it a great deal. Mm-hmm. Even then, even as a high school mm-hmm. student, finding this movie to be very moving and touching. Yeah. You know, the, the portrayal of Thomas More to be you know, inspiring. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also a heralded film, and it strikes me as a worthy choice. And yeah. yet, you sigh. So, so what? What's going on here? What are you going right, to? What are you going to tell us? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, so a man for all season. We have some interesting connections here going on because, of course, it's based on a play by Robert Bolt, who also wrote The Mission, right. which we talked about earlier, and The Mission, which starred Liam Neeson. The Mission is De Niro and Irons. But oh, Liam I'm Neeson. Very- yeah, a young Liam Neeson does pop in there. Yeah. So you're not totally yeah. 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 Um, who is in silence? Yes. So. Yes. <laughs> is this what you were referring to? Yeah, this was, this was the discombobulation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so anyway, so it started um, Bolt, who was, you know, not a Christian. Right, right. Which is so interesting in that he is responsible for these two pretty powerful kind of representations, expressions of, you know, integrity in a Christian context, the mm-hmm. mission and this one. Um, he wrote this originally as a radio play in the 50s, and then it was finally brought to the stage in England in 1960, had a very successful run there and on Broadway, and then was brought to film in 1966, with Paul Schofield starring in all of the plays, dramatic productions, stage productions, and the movie. So okay. if yeah. he feels, if this part feels lived in for him, there's a it reason. Was. Yeah. yeah. Now, I've never seen a stage production of the play, but from what I've read, it, it seems to me it's a little less naturalistic. It's more expressionistic hmm. uh, than the film. I'm not sure. Like, what would that even it, entail? It, well, it's think, like or? there's like a, a figure that runs through the play called the common man, oh, who right. is like the guy, the boat guy, maybe somebody in court, somebody in the more home, who is almost like a kind of a Greek chorus. Like I was saying, a chorus. Right? Yeah, like a, kind of figure. Okay. And um, and I think the trial even is was staged in a way, or the hearing or whatever, it was staged in a way that was a little, you know, that wasn't naturalistic. Mm-hmm. It wasn't attempting to represent what the court would have looked like at that time. <clears throat> but anyway, um, so, yeah, so uh, film released in 1966, won Best Picture, uh, Best Director from um, Zimmerman, I can't remember his first name, who also directed High Noon and From Here to Eternity, both also films about one man kind of against the system, and Best Actor for Paul Schofield, of course. Uh, also starring Wendy Hiller as Thomas More's wife. Vanessa Redgrave is in it, uncredited right. as Anne Boleyn. Um, John Hurt as the villain. It's a very, one of the a very young John Hurt. Yeah. <laughs> very young yeah. John Hurt as Richard Rich. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time or any time really comparing like 
the history, what really happened right. in the movie. The movie's, you know, I think pretty accurate account of the events. It it telescopes them, you know, it doesn't explain everything, it doesn't go into detail on everything, but it's not inaccurate on the basic sequence of events, which, you know, just for background, you know, uh, King Henry VIII became king in 1509 um, after a period in England of you know, tremendous dynastic wars, right? So that's that's mentioned in the movie, and mm. it's weighing heavy on everybody's mind. Um, first wife, Catherine of Aragon, who was of the Spanish royal court of Aragon, uh, who had been previously married to Henry's brother for just five months before he died. Um, now, according to church law, which at that time cleaved very close to Jewish law, is what this reflects, um, a man was not allowed to marry his brother's wife. Okay. If the brother had died. You know, I'm not even talking about divorce. Like his brother's widow, let's put it that way. And of course, Catherine had been married to Henry's brother who had died. So Henry had to get a dispensation from Rome in order to marry Catherine. Um, and, you know, often we kind of shorthand this conflict in terms of a divorce or an annulment or something like that. Right. But it's neither of those. Hmm. It's that he, you know, what Henry did is he went to Rome and said, please, please, please give me a dispensation to say it's okay to, for me to marry Catherine, my brother's widow. And then, you know, 25 years later goes back and says, please, please, please say you were wrong to give me that dispensation. Right, right. right. So, that's a, this is a little history channel yeah, kind of lesson. Yeah. You know, that's, I, I don't think I was aware of this. Yeah, yeah that's very yeah. interesting. And so after, you know, over 20 years, Catherine had not produced a male heir. You know, she had, you know, several male babies had died. She had produced a daughter, Mary. Um, and so Anne Boleyn appears at court. You know, history is made. And Henry decides that he, you know, wants to put away Catherine. So... When we begin the movie, um, Thomas More is in part of the court. He's part of, he's esteemed, he's honored. He is a longtime friend with Henry. In fact, in 1521, they published a book together. It was written by Henry, but probably written more by Thomas More in defense of the sacraments against Martin Luther. You don't think Henry VIII was <laughs> sitting down with his kid his theology. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Pulling out his Aquinas and everything. That's uh, that's yeah okay but no okay so what we can we can assume that more yeah. was the was the main author. yeah and right. you know and Henry had, was given the title by the Pope defender of the faith true right? right and so you know in those immediate post Reformation post Luther years you know Henry was holding up the Catholic faith the Roman Catholic faith in England um, and Thomas More was known and honored as a faithful Catholic he was a humanist. He was close friends with Erasmus, who was kind of the most notable intellectual of the period on the, on the continent. Luther's opponent. Yeah, Luther's opponent. Yes. Yeah. And both of them, both Moore and Erasmus, very, I think, devout Catholics, maybe more more than Erasmus, but very, de but also very aware of the, you know, the weaknesses of mm -hmm. the church and the shadows in the church, because during this period, it was quite you know common for people for 
faithful, devout Catholics to produce pretty biting satire mm-hmm. about the church and priests and so on. And in fact, the first dialogue in the movie is a joke that's being exchanged about um, priests and celibacy and all of that kind of thing um, in, a, in a gathering in Moore's home. So anyway... What happens is essentially, and I think most people probably know the plot here, is that Moore is put in the position of being, not having to, but being wanted to approve of Henry's putting away Catherine. And he refuses. And the pressure increases and increases and increases from all sides, from his you know, fellow you know, people in court, his family even, um, and the pressure that this takes, and the action that's asked is, is, you know, Henry doesn't have to have, like, legal permission from Thomas to do anything. But he needs, you know, public opinion on his side. Yeah, because I, what he has done, he is, you know, as time progresses, he declares himself head of the church in England. Mm-hmm. And then he declares that everybody has to take an oath accepting... Um, his marriage to Anne Boleyn, the act of succession, and, and their issue as a legitimate heir. And, you know, everybody's kind of going along with this, bishops, and everybody's going along with it, and Moore is refusing. Now, you know, as I said, he doesn't, you know, there's nothing legal that requires Moore's acceptance of this, but from Henry's perspective, but he, you know, Moore is so respected, and his refusal or his silence uh, right. on this is. Um, you know, damages Henry's reputation, damages the credibility of his claims, and so on. Yeah, I was, you know, I was going to yeah. say a minute ago. I mean, I think everybody you said you said earlier, everybody kind of knows the story, and right. it's true. We all sort of learned it, sort of, you know, world history class in mm-hmm. high school. Yeah. But I think what's important about the story is the figure of Moore, precisely because he wasn't politically essential. Right. Right. I mean, this is really a matter of conscience. I'm not sure you're going to mm-hmm. get into that. Right. But to, to sort of the, the more side of this story, the, the aspects about Sir Thomas More, are really forgotten in the world mm-hmm. civics class, mm-hmm. if you will, and they really are essential to understanding who he was and his spiritual significance. So right. I think you know you're right. Everybody knows the story, but but in order to focus on Thomas More, you have to kind of shift your emphasis as to right. what do these political decisions mean to individuals right. caught up in them. Right. right, and you can right. see the same kind of trajectory in our sort of climate and culture today, where, yeah. where people are caught up in these kind of political, you know, uh, machinations or, or, mm-hmm. or questions. And the question is, is like, what are you going to do? Are you going to go mm-hmm. along with it? Or are you going to resist it? But from a, if you zoom out the thirty thousand feet, the only thing that's really remembered is the political decision, not right. the individual response to it. Anyway, but at the same time, I think it. One of the things that struck me when I watched the movie the, recently this week was the power that the person with a conscience has. Sure. Right? Is that, and I think it comes out in silence too, right? Mm-hmm. Is that why not just like get rid of them quickly? Mm-hmm. You know, why do you want their approval? Because you know. <laughs> deep in your heart that there is first of all you may know that they're right right <laughs> and secondly you know that this is a person of integrity and we 
you know, we want to be associated with that. We, and in a way, it's a kind of an expression of a desire to be accepted by the good, to associate ourselves with the good rather than the craven, even though we kind of live in the craven. So I, I, to me, that's interesting. Well, it, it is interesting. And I, gosh, I don't want to turn this into like a, a sidebar uh, or, or a rabbit hole, but yeah. it does remind me too, though, of, you know, Kierkegaard talks a lot about in the 19th century about the question of leveling and how mm-hmm. sort of the dynamics of media have changed these kind of issues. And I think, I think he's really quite perceptive here because I don't know that Henry VIII would have killed Thomas More if, he, if this would have happened today. I think yeah. instead, oh, yeah. he would have slandered him in the media. He would have found right. like some kind of dirt, or there would have mm-hmm. been some kind of leak or right. something, and it right. would have been like, well, you know, Thomas More isn't all that either. Right. You know, you see, he voted with so and so years ago, or he supported this cause. Look right. what a disaster that was. Or right. he has a mistress, or something like that. And I, you know, I'm not saying the, the historical right. Thomas More right. did, but you know what I'm saying. I just think it's. This was a, a peculiar clash that mm-hmm. I don't know that would have happened the same way today. It still happens. And that, right. and, and that, that sort of process of leveling cancel culture, if you will, yeah. is still, you know, profound and it can be incredibly damaging to people's lives. But yes, this is, I think, historically contingent in some mm-hmm. ways, too, because this is an era where if you don't go along with the king, it's off with your head. Right. Yeah. And if it's treason, which is, yeah. you know, and that's so the, the trajectory of the film is that he's. You know, he's leading this kind of content life, doing his job, you know, appearing at court and all of that kind of thing. And then the pressure starts to build. The pressure first comes from Wolsey, played by Orson Welles, um, and then from the king himself in a very kind of entertaining visit to the, to the Moore home. Um, we have a good kind of capsule of the relationship between Henry VIII and mm-hmm. Moore. You know, Henry VIII expansive and friendly, and why can't you just like do this? And kind of they, they parry, they make their mm-hmm. arguments about what's actually more faithful to God and the church. And you know, he says, you know, by not having an heir or by trying to have an heir, I'm being more faithful to God and all of that. Kind of, why are you standing in the way of this and all of that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. So with that that pressure, his friend. Duke of Norfolk tries to put pressure on him. Um, And it's all just kind of pressure to approve or whatever until the oath of succession comes into it. And then it gets real. Mm. You know, then everybody has been told to take the oath. And if you don't take the oath, it's considered treason. And that's the point at which you can be imprisoned and lose your head. Now, what Moore does, though, it's not that he refuses to take the oath, but he refuses to also say why. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the point of great and legal wrangling and linguistic mm-hmm. wrangling in the movie, in that they are saying to him over and over in these situations, in these settings, you're not going to take the oath, you are committing treason. He said, I am not saying why I'm not taking the oath. My, my hand son. is cramping. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right. right. Yeah. And my silence, he said, usually silence is in the law is taken to, for consent. Mm-hmm. So it's perfectly legitimate for you to actually infer that my silence implies consent. Um, and He's not seeking martyrdom. He's not short. seeking martyrdom right. at all. Um, he is seeking, and I think it's an interesting question, and I think this is one of the things I want to talk about in relationship to both these films is casuistry, mm. word versus action, 
withholding, you know, being able to sort of do something or say something that we really don't believe in order to, you know, save our lives or kind of make, keep an external uh, credibility or whatever. Because, you know, over and over in the movie, in the play, people say to Thomas More, just say the words. They're just words. Right. And he said, no, they're not just words. You know, words are more than that. Words are more trample. Than that. Yeah, trample. <laughs> yeah, right? right. Same thing. Um, and finally, Moore is imprisoned. Um, and, but what finally brings him down is a lie, is perjury. And that's our friend Richard Rich, played by John Hurt, who has been in and out since the beginning. He has, um, he's almost like the Judas character mm, in Silence. Hero. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, you know, kind of always in and out, and he is a betrayer as well. And he first asks Moore for a job, for a position, and Moore says, nope, no, you know, you're not going to get, you know, go ask Cromwell for a position, and which is already sets Richard Rich on edge. And then he finally gets a position with Cromwell. And um, he, in the end, he has witnessed an exchange. A, a woman um, offered Thomas Moore a cup, a silver cup, um, kind of as a bribe, you know, but he didn't take it as a bribe. He just accepted it mm -hmm. and, and did not issue a judgment in her favor. But he had given this cup to Rich and told him how he'd gotten it. And Rich used that as a way to kind of impugn his character and imply that he was taking bribes. But in the end, what happens is that Rich is brought in to into the final hearing, the final court scene, and asked if Moore had ever said anything against the king. It's funny, I, I, right? now that you're saying all this, I am like, it is kind of cancel culture, actually. Yeah, it is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, but anyway, right. keep going, right, yeah. so, yeah. And he says, and he, he does, and he, he he recounts a conversation that he had with Moore, which is like, you know, 80% truth, and then he inserts words of Moore's mm. against the king and against the succession, so the king does not have the power to do this, to make himself the head of the church and to do this. At which point, um, that's it. That's treason. Mm -hmm. And in the very famous scene, um, Rich walks away, walks past Moore, and Moore says, what's that around your neck? And it's a medal, mm -hmm. a symbol, signet. And he says, what is this for? And he says, oh, Master Rich has been named Attorney General of Wales. And he says, you know, Moore looks at him sadly and says, you did this. I can understand, you know, we sell our soul, but for whales, Richard, but for whales. <laughs> Spoken like a good Englishman. Yes. <laughs> um, and so, of course, that's it for Thomas More. Um, and we see his execution, not the whole thing, but just his, it's uh, not like some aspects of silence, but right. <laughs> some scenes in silence, but he is executed. And as the movie ends, we end with a voiceover coda, which tells us the fate of every, the major characters in the film. Closing with, you know, everybody basically was imprisoned, executed. Everybody, you know, kind of the devil came back to bite them all. Um, except for Richard Rich, mm. who died in his bed. And mm. if you, you know, Richard Rich is like a villain. I mean, he was essential in the executions of several saints, including John Fisher. He was essential in the dissolution of the monasteries and benefited greatly from all of that. 
Um, so he's an apt counterpoint to Moore, who gave everything he had for the truth, including his life. So that's you know kind of the the basic plot structure of A Man for All Seasons, and I think it's obvious why this has been you know loved as a spiritual classic for many years since it you know, was released because of course Thomas More is a saint mm -hmm. he's a canonized saint along with many other martyrs of this period and he you know he left such a rich record including writings from his time in prison that his kind of motivations and his thought is no mystery um, and we can take a lot of encouragement and inspiration from his life but I think I think the thing that I grapple with that's interesting to me is this whole issue of silence mm -hmm. and what do we do when our, you know, consciences tell us that something around us is wrong? Do we speak up? Do we fight? Do we maintain silence? Do we do nothing? Do we try to do our small part? And I think the more character here is a little complicated because right. it's not just you can't do this king henry the eighth and i'm going to go to the tower for the sake of that it's he's kind of as you said he's like wanting to preserve his life and his, save his family and all of that kind of thing um he's kind of doing what he can to get right to the edge and not go over and not in a craven way but in a very human way right well you know i think about you know again apologies for for philosophizing on this, but you know, Kierkegaard wrote a piece, I believe it was 1849, called Does a Human Being Have the Right to Let Himself Be Put to Death for the Truth? Yeah. And that's right. a mouthful, but it's an interesting piece. Um, and he, he sort of weaves in and out of this sort of thing, and he's sort of playing with the idea, in a nutshell, is it okay to seek martyrdom? Yeah. And he ultimately decides, right. and I say he, it's technically a pseudonymous work, but it was more or less in his Kierkegaard's voice. Right. Um, certainly there's a, there's a, autobiographical section at the beginning of the piece about a, a young person who was so taken with the image of Jesus that he wanted to, to suffer in the manner mm -hmm. of Jesus. Well, in any case, um, in the conclusion, Kierkegaard says, H.H., the pseudonym, says, well, no, a human being doesn't have the right to let himself be put to death for the truth. However, if a human being were to deny that he has that right in humility, and if the authorities were to be so offended by his denial and his, and his humble uh, as it were, submission to the example mm. of Christ. And if those said authorities were to put him to, put him to, to, to death for mm. this admission, well then, it's okay. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it, right. it, it reminds yeah. me of that a little bit. I mean, like, you know, Thomas More here is saying, I'm not worthy to be a martyr. Mm -hmm. I'm no, I'm no Christ-like figure. I have a family, I have mm -hmm. a position. Um, but I also have limits. Mm -hmm. Like, my conscience has limits. Um, I, I, I will do everything I can to, you know, humble myself before the authorities, but should they find that I deserve to be put to death for the truth, then mm -hmm. I'm willing to, to, to undergo that fate. Right. And so I see it as not so much an avoidance or an attempt to avoid right. his, you know, expressing his conscience mm -hmm. as much as I see it as an attempt to remain true to himself, true right. to his family, his commitments. And then also, ultimately, a willingness to die when push comes to shove. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the question of do you have, you know, the question of seeking martyrdom and mm -hmm. 
all of that. I mean, it comes into silence as well as the, the effect of that on others, because that's a big kind of pull in this film is the effect of his stance on his family. It has driven them to poverty and his death is going to, you know, do its own damage and perhaps even threaten them. He tells them to leave the country. Right. Um, and so, you know, is, I think that it's an interesting question, but I think the balance is struck here because he, it's an interesting kind of tension between being carried along by events, but being an actor, you know, being your own, you know, having your own agency. Um, and it's almost a kind of a master class in how to do that, I mm -hmm. think. So anyway. Yeah. Okay. Are you ready for the categories? I'm ready for the categories okay, I let's guess. <laughs> you guess. Yeah. All right. So uh, funniest moments. Well, the thing about this movie is that and I think one of the reasons it is continues to be beloved is because first of all, it's only two hours long. Right. And in that two hours Unlike Scorsese's recent work. <laughs> right. I appreciate yeah. everybody. Yeah. Uh, in that two hours is there's not like a wasted character. There's mm -hmm. not like a, a wasted moment. And of course it had you know, years as a play, so we had time to hone that. Mm -hmm. But um, a lot of the humor is derived from the characters. Right. And how precisely they are drawn from Will Roper, who is um, in, interested and then becomes the husband of Moore's daughter, Meg, and who is just this kind of, you know, big puppy of a guy who's like an enthusiast. When we first meet him, he's a Lutheran, and it, for that reason, Moore won't let him marry Meg, and then he becomes a big defender of the church, and he's just, he's like the embodiment of enthusiasm. So we have all of that, plus the, the home scenes and so on. So I would say for my most humorous scene, I would say the, um, the scene when Henry VIII comes to, yeah, yeah, the whole scene from when the boats draw up and his court, you know, he's on this big barge with bunting and all the, and surrounded by courtiers and an orchestra and all that kind of thing. And <laughs> they pull up and nobody kind of knows what to do. They're not quite at the shore and Henry jumps out into the mud and turns and laughs and they all <laughs> Oh, okay. It's okay to laugh now. And he was then, a vigorous man. That's yes, right. he was a vigorous <laughs> man. And then, and then his introduction to the family, to um, Moore's wife and daughter. That's all. That's all very entertaining. It's all. in, in Schofield has as Moore has a number of quips, right? Yeah. Lines. It's right. very, very sort of classic British humor. Yeah. Sort of understated but very witty. It's a extremely well written yeah. play, like you said, and then mm -hmm. adapted well for the screen. Okay. Most poignant moment with his family in prison, right? Um, yeah. I mean, especially saying goodbye to his wife, and because again, it's very complicated because she's mad at him, mm -hmm. she's angry with him. Why are you doing this? You know, I don't understand. You could be home with us, right? Right. right. Um, and but knowing that it was probably the last time he was going to see them in person, um, very very poignant. Yeah, Tower of London. I believe, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, if you can only watch one scene, I have a guess as to what you're going to say. I mean, to, to me, I would, I would think it would be this this dialogue with Henry VIII, right? I mean, it is kind of the it the a, linchpin. Yeah, scene in either a way. that yeah. or the final court scene. Yeah, that's crazy. Either, either one of those yeah. kind of combine everything. But I think the the scene with Henry VIII does express the major conflicts and tensions in the situation in a pretty succinct way, too. Okay. Yeah. All right, best performance. And you could, I mean, I, this one, I, I can already tell from the look yeah. on your face. So 
why is it Paul Schofield? And then is there anybody else that you would throw out? There? Well, I think they're yeah. all good. Yeah. They're all good. But as I said, Schofield has a lived in um, aspect to this performance. I mean, he physically changes, and that's not just to him. I mean, that's makeup and hair and all that kind of thing. But you can see the difference between Schofield at the beginning and kind of the almost broken, but it just at least exhausted mentally and uh, emotionally exhausted man at the end. I mean, he does change, but his. I don't know. It's just a wonderful performance because he's he embodies you know, kind of wisdom and wit and compassion and yeah, it's a great performance. Do you know his filmography very well? I mean, are you no. a fan? I mean, I, I remember him being in like that Robert Redford directed it called Quiz Show with uh, Ray Fiennes. Oh yeah, he played Mark uh, Van, Doren. Van Doren, right? Right. And yeah. uh, and he there's something about yeah. him. I, That's I, his voice. I dare say he's almost typecast in a way yeah. as like. The clever, witty, intellectual, right. you know, who also has, you know, maybe some virtues. I mean, he, right. I, maybe he did play a villain or a crass person. He's yeah. like burping or something <laughs> in, in other movies. But I feel like, yeah, he always just seems to be like the clever, kind-hearted intellectual. Right. And, uh, you know, that, that's how I associate it. But I don't know his filmography. I don't know well. it other than that either. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. All right. And then finally, what's your takeaway? Uh, for whales? No. Uh, I mean, in a way, that could be it. You know, what do you, if you're going to, you know, violate your conscience, you know, we think back and say, I violated my, violated my conscience for that, really? But that, no, I'd say the, the uh, real takeaway would be to, is that there is integrity, more integrity in, you know, living your conscience and there's a price to pay, but the integrity that you gain is uh, priceless. Is eternal. Is right? eternal. There you go. That's right. <laughs> um, well, speaking of integrity and right. it's eternal, we'll turn our attention next to silence, which I think is a little bit more complicated in its, it in its unpacking of this problem. Absolutely. Um, related for sure, but yeah. more complicated and I think harder to walk away with a kind of clear example. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that silence negates the, the, the telling of films like A Man mm -hmm. for All Seasons, but it just muddies the water a little bit. It certainly bit. does. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we'll take a break. We'll come back and we'll jump into Martin Scorsese's Silence. Okay, we're back from our break. We, we walked up to the bar here. We were given, what, you have, what, what are you drinking? Blood orange. Uh, a blood orange just IPA. just tastes like a beer to me. Right. <laughs> I'm having a chili IPA, which I was told is, what is it? Not Third, it, The it's hops or whatever at 35 <laughs> they degrees. They do something to the hops at 35 degrees. <laughs> Instead of 60. As opposed to 60. But anyway, the people here at Cahaba continue to be super generous. Yes. Uh, in this nice space and it's relatively quiet. And, Very quiet. Uh, right and the now. beer is actually really good too. It is. You're around. Yeah. Um, all right. Just in time to talk about one of the more harrowing movies you'll ever watch. Yes. I got a quote in here from a critic. I, it's somewhere in my notes. I'll find it in a minute. But okay. this, the critic, I was like, he's not really doing any Scorsese any favors. I mean, this, this came out contemporaneously with the release of the movie. And the guy says, Prepare for your soul to be assaulted for three hours. And it's like, and we wonder why this movie lost money. <laughs> um, but it is, it is an important movie, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to talking about it. It could have been higher on my list. I mean, I probably kept it around here, number seven, maybe because it does leave so much unresolved. I don't, I don't know. I have to think about that. I'm not sure why I didn't have it three or four. It certainly could have been. Yeah, I, I wouldn't put it that high. Okay. Good. We'll, we'll see. I'll see why you think that. Mostly because of, well, no. Because <laughs> of how long it is. Maybe. 
because of Andrew Garfield's hair. Very distracting to me. Are you serious? I was very bothered by it. Wait a second. You're making me a little self-conscious right now. <laughs> For those who don't know, I have very long hair right no, now. No, it was so puffy. It was so puffy. It is rather perfect at times. Like, yeah, he's, he's, he's been beaten and he's trapped he's in, in this jail. Right. And this, like, puffy hair. Yeah, it's like, it's, it, it does look like But he is Spider-Man, so I guess. Right. Oh, I'm just saying, my daughter was like, are you like going for his hair, Dad? That's what he said. Really? I'm, I'm not kidding you. Yes. <laughs> That's an on air insult that you just recorded. Okay. All right. All right. Right, right. I got to gather myself <laughs> and sort of, you know, uh, get my wits back about me. All right. So, Silence is Martin Scorsese's 24th film. Okay. Mm -hmm. It was preceded by The Wolf of Wall Street in 2013. Did you see that? No. No. Okay. That's a dude movie. It is a dude movie, but and I it? don't like you know I don't like DiCaprio, so yeah, that's true. You do you do have <laughs> you have an antipathy towards him. Uh, anyway, Wolf of Wall Street, Scorsese's highest grossing movie of all time, wow. which may speak to its dudeness, yeah, right? And right. there's a lot of you know the talk about the salaciousness of the film and Margot Robbie, and mm -hmm. this was like her big debut, and of course DiCaprio. On uh, on drugs, crawling to his Lamborghini. Uh, what were the drugs again? I got uh, Quaaludes, right? Right. The Quaalude King of Bayside, or whatever. So there's all these kind of like really salacious scenes, and then on the other side of silence was The Irishman, which came out in 2019, heavily promoted on Netflix. I think a great film mm -hmm. could also be in the top 20 mm -hmm. of, of spiritual films, in my opinion, as well. And then sandwiched but in between these, a movie about Wall Street shenanigans and. Yeah. and drug use and craziness and then on the other side gangsters and hitmen and so on is silence right. 2016. and I, I remember an article you know years ago where there was some speculation like is is silence like a penitential movie mm -hmm. uh, for scorsese i mean a lot of people felt that the wolf of wall street mm. not unlike goodfellas uh tended to glorify criminality mm. and there was some speculation that maybe silence was an attempt to kind of audiences back towards more serious more mm -hmm. upbuilding fair i don't think that's really true i mean if you read a lot of interviews with scorsese in any case he claims that he wanted to make the film since you know, the late 1980s i think around yeah. the time of last temptation of christ right. so he yeah. had wanted to make the film for years and it just so happened that it came out at this time period mm -hmm. but i think we can safely say this has been something of a i don't want to call it a renaissance because scorsese never really had a sort of serious downturn in his career but the last few, the last decade or so, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Wolf of Wall Street, Silence, um, The Irishman, and The Now Killers of the Flower Moon right. are four highly acclaimed movies. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Scorsese has really hit his stride here in, in his later years. Okay, so the novel, right? Silence, the film, is based on Silence, the novel, Chinmoku, right? Written by the Japanese novelist Shusako Endo. And you're a fan, correct? I am. Yeah. I'm a fan. How many of his novels have you read? I don't know. Six but or seven, yeah. Okay, you read. Okay, you read yeah. more than me. Then mm -hmm. I've read Silence and I've read Samurai. Right. Which are the two big ones? Mm -hmm. What else have you read? Or does, does any? I, does I, any don't ask up? me. Don't ask me. You don't remember the titles, right? Well, right. no, I got you. No, I, it's funny because I was reading through this morning like his bibliography, and I was, right. and I was sort of like, oh, that sounds like, and I was just reading some of the like the, like the two sentence summaries, you mm -hmm. know, and I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. Like and scandal, I, I, I read Scandal, okay. Wild River, I think is one, and you okay. know, his Life of Jesus. Yes, I haven't read it. No, and I've heard Scorsese of it. Scorsese is saying that his Life of Jesus movie is based in part on oh. Endo's. Okay. All right. Book. Fascinating. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so Indo himself is a major figure, right? I mean, mm -hmm. this is not Scorsese like 
pulling some small novel off the shelf somewhere. Right. Um, Endo is one of the major figures of 20th century Japanese literature, maybe of Japanese literature writ large, or Japanese sure. novels anyway. Um, you know, he was he was born in Japan, as mentioned. He was baptized Catholic around 11 or 12, um, and you know had a, a, a marked interest in literature from a young age. But it was really at the University of Lyon in France in the okay. 1950s that he became sort of, I guess you might say, he, he found a new impetus for his work. It was sort right. of like he read people like Francois Mauriac and Georges Bernanos and was like, oh, that's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. I want to write religiously engaging uh, fiction. Uh, and this really changed the trajectory of his career. He comes out with a novel called White Man mm -hmm. in 1955. I don't know if you've read mm -hmm. that one. Mm -hmm. It's followed by... Yellow Man, the next, I think the next year. Uh, apparently, these, like a lot of Indo's novels, there's a real interplay between East and West in his works. And I suspect that that's behind some of these, these uh, titles and so on. Well, yeah, I mean, I think one of his big themes is the question of, I mean, which comes out in silence, is, is Christianity actually compatible with the Asian mindset? Right. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. It, it's, it's very prominent, as you said, in silence. Mm -hmm. So the breakthrough novel for Endo is Silence, right? Chinmoku. Um, and, uh, you know, it won, you know, it was feted, won awards, the Tanazaki Prize, which I guess is sort of like the, what would be the equivalent, I think, in Pulitzer or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the Japanese Pulitzer right. or something like that. Um, but he goes on. I mean, his career doesn't end with Silence. I mean, it actually really kind of jumpstarts at that point. Mm -hmm. The Samurai comes out in 1980. That's a fantastic novel, mm -hmm. if anybody yeah. ever, you know, is About is a really interesting aspect of history right, right? yeah yeah no yeah. absolutely I, I really that's a page turner i mean mm -hmm. one of the things about endo that i think is worth saying is that his novels are not boring no. i mean i think you know a not lot of people all. even said the silence the film because it's so long i found, found it to be boring at parts mm -hmm. i did not find the novel to be boring mm -hmm. at all i mean it is yeah. a page turner it's the kind of thing you don't put to bed at night you know right. so i would recommend anybody who's looking for a good read and if you haven't read endo check out silence or the samurai first and then maybe his mm -hmm. the rest of his works um, Indo's famous, like as Amy just said, for this question about the role of Christianity in Asia. He tends to focus on religious people who are caught up in a crisis of faith. And I think, you know, it looks like if you poke around his biography a little bit, that there's some you know, personal aspects yeah. to this. He had a lot of health problems. Um, yeah. uh, a, a number of, of, I think, you know, maybe bouts of the, in the hospital. Like mm -hmm. He was in and out of the hospital for years at certain times. Um, again, maybe a Flannery O'Connor type experience, you know, mm -hmm. where, where writing was his outlet because he had so many health issues. Mm -hmm. uh, and so just, you know, kind of an interesting figure, understated. He kind of recedes in the background of his work. A lot of times it's historical. Yeah. Um, yeah. But just a, a really impressive uh, body of writing. And, you know, Scorsese, I'm sure, has identified with Indo precisely as this Catholic artist grappling with suffering. Right, right. right. And I, I don't know if any... I mean, I, I, I think you're a Scorsese fan. I don't know if you're a huge Scorsese fan. No, I'm fan. not right. a huge Scorsese fan. Have you seen fan. Raging Bull? Yes, I saw yeah. it in the theater years ago. Okay, so. what did you think about it? I liked it at yeah. the time, but I mean, what, what was that, 70-something? So 1980, yeah, right. Yeah, right. so we're talking like, so a long time That's when you saw it, yes. 19, okay, yes. <laughs> right. That's I mean, pretty cool. Oh, I'm, yeah, pretty cool, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I mean that, actually. It's like hearing somebody went to see the Rolling Stones. and you know, <laughs> I saw Star Wars in the theater, too. That make okay. me even cooler. Well, so, but, you know, Raging Bull, I, I remember, I, I taught, a, or I have taught, in fact, even... Uh, as recently as this past fall, classes on Phil Villanova, right. and I showed Raging Bull 
one of my classes oh, yeah. because it is, you know, Scorsese's attempt to kind of explore like spiritual rebirth. Mm -hmm. You don't know that because it's about boxing, but mm -hmm. there's there's actually quotes from the gospel that are mm -hmm. included on either side of the film and various things. There's this, a kind of a conversion scene in the prison, but it is painful to watch. Oh, it yeah. is it is a yeah. it, is, it is not a page turner, if you will. Right. right? It is right. hard to get through. It's a black and white. And when Jake LaMotta starts pounding the walls with his fist and bleeding from the knuckles, yeah, that's not fun. Right, you know? right. And uh, and I remember like, okay, Raging Bull off the syllabus next semester. <laughs> um, but, you know, Scorsese was drawn to this question. And there's plenty of yeah. literature on this. If you yeah. go through, if you look at my book right. uh, on Scorsese and religion, but there's plenty of other books as well that go into this. Last Temptation of Christ mm -hmm. famously depicts Jesus as struggling with temptation mm -hmm. and sin and these kind of things. Uh, and so... Scorsese clearly identifies with the kind of religious vision that Indo has. Uh, and it's not at all surprising. If you know Scorsese, it's not surprising whatsoever that he would have been attracted to silence. Um, and, you know, again, his reverence for this, for this story is clear in terms of, you know, the way that he adheres to the story sort of parameters, which he does mm -hmm. almost uh, mm -hmm. with total faithfulness. But I think it's also true in terms of the film's form. Yeah. Um, I'm going to come back to this later, but like your initial impression of, did you see it in the theaters as well or did it take no, some time? No. no. Okay. Yeah. I'll come back to it later, but I did. I saw the okay. theater pretty much, I think, opening night in Philadelphia. Mm. Um, but one of the first things that struck me, and I went with a group of people and there was a lot of, you know, oh, the new Scorsese movie, Wolf of Wall Street was awesome. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. Oops. And, you know, I had read the novel, of course, yeah. and so yeah. I was not necessarily expecting... Uh, I don't know, an exciting, sort of titillating film mm -hmm. necessarily. Mm -hmm. But I, I was struck at how sparse the movie was. Mm -hmm. it, it, there, mm -hmm. There's really no Scorsese-ing in mm -hmm. it, if you will, mm -hmm. right? There's no, even The Last Temptation of Christ, where you have famously Harvey Keitel right. as Judas right. speaking right. in a you know, Brooklyn accent. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't really get any of that in silence. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything's paired away. There's there's really no soundtrack, no no. Mm -hmm non-diegetic music whatsoever or mm -hmm. just the very minimal bit, bits at the beginning even the ending doesn't have uh you know mm -hmm. a kind of overlay of soundtrack it's just the sound of crickets and sort right. of nature uh, right. sounds oh, um there, there's not really any freeze frame or tracking shots i think i can think of one tracking shot early in the film but there's none of these kind of scorsese tricks that yeah you know we all know if you're if you're a fan of cinema and, and you can immediately tell that it's a Martin Scorsese film, mm -hmm. I would say maybe except for this movie. Yeah. Whereas right. I think here you could be confused that this is a, this is a Dreyer or a Malick or a right. Besson or something like right. that. It doesn't have the typical Scorsese uh, trademarks. Um, one final note before I start. Go ahead. Yeah. No. 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 Yeah. I'm just okay. All right. All right. So. <laughs> so so before I get into uh, the film itself, I want to make one more note. And, and I have not seen these films, but this is actually the third cinematic adaptation of Indo's novel. Did you know that? I had no idea. Yes, right. Are you kidding? No, I'm not kidding. What? So okay. there's a, a Japanese director, and I, I, apparently he's quite famous. I don't know his work myself, but his name is uh, Masahiro Shinoda. He released a film version of Silence in 1971. Uh, and then there's a Portuguese director named Jao Grio who offered his own version of silence in 1996 so the 71 version you can actually find clips of this when i look okay. i was kind of poking around about it this morning and it's very different in tone and apparently indo did not like it oh interesting right. so the, the the piece that i read on this this morning argued that scorsese's version indo would have approved of okay. um and scorsese according to this author i forgot i would i would give you the 
a link or something off the top of my head, but I don't know it. Again, I was just sort of fooling around with it. But this this author seemed to be suggesting that Scorsese captures the religious spirit of Indo's novel better yeah. than this previous uh, adaptation. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the bottom line is that, you know, Indo's novel, again, it's famous. It's it's had a whole long line of responses. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that Scorsese is just one person who has responded to the film, not not, you know, not uh you know, it's not like, again, people say this is his passion project. This is what he's all about or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he, you know, he was part of a larger conversation around the, in mm -hmm. his novel is ultimately what I would say. Um, OK, in terms of development, um, Scorsese read the book in 1989. It takes him 20 years to even start looking for location wow. shots. Um, it sort of it sort of marinates over that, that period of time. Production began in 2014, and it kind of went into sort of budget, you know, sort of what do they call it, development hell, right? I remember yeah. that because I remember seeing things, you know, in the news saying, oh, Scorsese's making silence, Scorsese's making silence, and this went on for ages. Right, right. right. <laughs> they, they had to bring in so many sort of production studios. Yeah. I mean, as it turned out, people were rightfully concerned that the film would bomb at the box office, <laughs> and they were right. It, it didn't do well at the box office. Um, they were going to shoot in Japan near Nagasaki, which is where the, the, mm -hmm. the novel is set. They ended up having to settle for Taiwan due to budgetary mm -hmm. constraints. They initially wanted Daniel Day-Lewis to play Rodriguez. That would have been a fantastic. <laughs> I really like Andrew Garfield, despite your comments about his hair. Um, but I think Daniel Day-Lewis would have been a home yeah. run. Yes. Um, but nevertheless, they, they whiffed Ooh. on him. They couldn't afford him. Hmm. And there are other uh, major actors, if you will, who were attached to the project ended up dropping out. Hmm. And everybody ended up working for scale. Oh, okay, so okay. Garfield and Adam Driver, who were young, up-and-coming mm -hmm. actors at that time, because both of them were pretty close to superstars at this point. I think Adam Driver even more so, oh, yeah. probably. Oh, yeah. Um, but still, both, I think, very fine, mm -hmm. younger, young-ish actors at this yeah. point, not young, perhaps. Um, and they worked for scale. Scorsese worked for scale. And everybody you know, kind of threw themselves into this sort of art for art's sakes kind of project, right? I mean, famously, did you ever listen to any interviews with Garfield about this? No. You know, he read Ignatius of Loyola's Spiritual Exercises and went on retreat. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry for yeah. what I said about his hair. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, does, his hair does hair come up in Ignatius' work? No, no, but I mean, that's, that's admirable. Well, yeah. the thing yeah. is, there's a really good, again, I don't have the link. Maybe I can add this to the Substack later, but there's a long interview with Andrew Garfield on huh. Mark Maron's podcast, WTF. Yeah. Okay. okay. And um, yes, that's the name yeah. of the podcast. Yeah. Um, and he talks a lot about, he's a, his religious background is kind of fuzzy, mm -hmm. but he said that this movie really changed his perspective on religion. And that he really, he didn't sort of come out and say he's a believer or mm -hmm. that he is a Christian or something, but I think... I think he definitely comes across as a seeker yeah, um, and, and open. very open yeah. to religious okay. questions. It's, it's a really good interview. He's really thoughtful, really mm -hmm. smart guy. And of course, he nails that scene in The Social Network. Everybody knows that, yeah. right? <laughs> Another great movie. Um, okay. So Silence is ultimately released in November of 2016 at the Pontifical Oriental Institute in Rome. Have you been there? No. No, I have, I have not. not either. But no. apparently it's not attached to the Vatican. Okay. But that, of course, it is very much influenced by, right. I think, the Jesuits in particular. Mm -hmm. It premieres there. It goes into wider release in January 2017. Probably a bad choice if I'm thinking in about January, it. January, yeah. Yeah, that's when I saw it. Um, and yeah, it lost millions of dollars, but the critics liked it. Mm -hmm. And yet, even then, it did not get a ton of awards nominations. 
this kind of makes me think a little bit more about Calvary as well. Like mm-hmm. I think films about Catholic priests are just the the the, yeah. the awards people are going to kind of turn their nose up at it. It, yeah. it certainly wasn't the critical response, which was almost uniformly positive. Right, um, I mean, right. many critics thought it was the the best movie of 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think again, I, and this is the, here's the quote I mentioned earlier. I do think reviews like this hurt the movie. Quote, this is a quote. Yeah. Scorsese's brutal spiritual yeah. epic will scald and sucker your soul. Okay, so I yeah. guess there's a good the sucker in there. Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people were not sort of thinking like, I want to get my soul scalded this right. Friday night. You right. know, <laughs> let's go get dinner and get our soul scalded. <laughs> uh, and I think a lot of people said, you know, no, thank you. Uh, I'll Maybe I'll catch it when it's streaming mm-hmm. on Netflix or what yeah. have you. Um, many, of course, in academic circles or critical circles were drawn to it. They saw it as a kind of homage to Bresson and Dreher and all these figures. Right. But for a lot of people, it kind of got pushed off to the side. Yeah, not a popular right. subject. And, and there's right. good reason yeah. for that, yeah. right? Okay, so so let's dig into the movie itself. Um, it's set in the 17th century, okay, several decades after Jesuit missionary Francis Xavier, who's referred to at times in mm-hmm. the film. They're not talking about Francis of Assisi, right? right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesuit missionary Francis Xavier brought Christianity to Japan in 1549. Um, and so you have this kind of pre-existing introduction of Christianity to Japan. That was not opposed. Initially, right. Initially, right. right. So it's not like the Jesuits brought this to an already hostile environment. Correct. You know, you can't kind of blame them for that. It was like, it was not opposed. Yeah, no, right. and I don't, I don't have, I'm not sort of prepared to talk right. about that right. in my notes, but right. I will say this, I think it's a very fair point to bring up because some people thought this movie was about like white saviors or, you know, Christians coming in and sort of, you know, oppressing the Japanese with their faith. But in, in reality, if you watch the film, if you don't just kind of watch mm-hmm. a clip or two on YouTube, if you actually watch the film, it's sort of the, you know, the kind of aristocrats in Japanese culture, they're the ones who are oppressing the poorer right. people who are drawn to Christianity, which has been brought to them from the outside. So exactly. far from it being some kind of lionization of, of Christian imperialism, it's actually this this kind of aristocratic clinging to power mm-hmm. that Christianity runs up against in right. the Japanese context. Um, okay, so we, we meet a few different priests here. The, the, the story begins with with Father Ferreira, played by Liam Neeson, who is uh, witnessing the, the sort of torture and the suffering of a number of his uh, Christian converts or, mm-hmm. or parishioners. Um, and we all we know about Ferreira through another introduction is that he has been lost since this event. Nobody knows where he is. Um, and this priest tells these other two young priests, uh, Father Sebastio Rodriguez, played by Andrew Garfield, as mentioned earlier, and then also Fran- Father Francisco Garupe, played by Adam Driver, who is fantastic in limited screen time. Uh, These two priests are sort of told Ferreira, your teacher, your mentor, this this great missionary to Japan is lost to us. Mm -hmm. So Rodriguez and Garupe say, we will go find him. We we cannot let all of his work and the work of the Jesuits in Japan go by the wayside. Mm -hmm. So they, they charter a boat, so on and so forth. And they find a guide. Yes. Well, the, guy, the classic, <laughs> the classic guy. Right. I mean, I, 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 you know, it's funny. I don't have a ton sort of prepared on him, but they do. They find this, this um, helper, Kijijiro. Mm-hmm. The only Japanese they right. can find. Right. Right. They're in Macau. They're right? in Macau. That's right. right. 
And uh, Kichijiro is he's a drunk, he's, he's depressed. Uh, his family was killed in the persecutions uh, of Christians. Mm-hmm. He really wants, in a way, he wants nothing to do with these priests, but in another sense, he wants assurance that he will go to Paricio. Or pa- yeah. am, I, am I saying it correctly? Par- I mean, Paricio. Paricio. And he wants yeah. to go home. He wants to go back to Japan. Right, too. right. So he's a, it he turns right. out to be a very uh, unfortunate kind of friend for them in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Uh, so once the two priests arrive in Japan, what they encounter is a really desperate situation. The last Christians in the country are fishermen, peasants, farmers, this sort of thing. And they practice their faith in secret. Um, and everything they do is sort of silence right mm-hmm. you might say right there's right. there's a, there's a sense in which they have to kind of go about under the cover of darkness they have um one one of the local i guess kind of a holy man if you will mm-hmm. he does the baptisms right. which is licit mm-hmm. according to church sure. law but nobody can say the, the mass or, right. or get the eucharist out right. right or confession so immediately um these priests are kind of forced to help uh these these poor japanese christians um but what's worse is that the shogunal authorities have these kind of periodic checks, right? And this is historically something people have often heard about this in, uh, you know, in sort of Roman, Roman times, right? But this is right. a, a sort of version of that, right? So imagine the, the sort of the, the military, if you will, or, or sort of a, a, some kind of contingent of, of forces and troops, whatever, shows up in your town. And they basically gather everybody out and they, they set down these icons mm-hmm. of the Christian faith out in the mud or in the muck or right. whatever. And they gather certain people together and they say, step. Mm-hmm. If you step on the, the face here, trample on mm-hmm. the face of this, of this icon, then we'll know that you're not a Christian. Everybody knows what that means. There's a lot of hand-wringing about should they step, should they not step. As it turns out, most of them are okay with stepping. But they're not okay with like spinning on the cross. They're sort right. of like, much like Thomas mm-hmm. More. There mm-hmm. are there, there's there's a there's a point at which they can't. They, there's a line that they will not cross. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know immediately Rodriguez and Grupe realize that this is a life and death kind of situation. Mm-hmm. If people are you know found out to be Christians, they will be killed. Uh, do you do you want to jump in on that or mm-hmm. anything? Okay. Mm-hmm. So I think. The, one of the, and I'll go ahead and give it away. This is my most poignant mm. scene in the film. Mm. Is uh, is where I think the point where Rodriguez and Garupe realize, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore, right, if you will. Right. So there's uh, there's one of these sort of you know persecutions. Mm. Um, a handful of, of Japanese Christians are rounded up. Kichijiro, of course, does uh, apostatize right. and runs away. Runs away. Right. right. And what they do is they, and this is in Indo's novel as well. Mm-hmm. They they set up these crosses in the ocean. The tide is out. They 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 you know attach the men to the crosses, and then when the tide comes in, they drown or mm-hmm. they they give up from exhaustion. The waves are just buffeting mm-hmm. these uh, poor souls in in the water. And Scorsese really, I mean, it's it's a breathtaking moment. It it, it should be, you know, it's horrifying and it's calmness mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, you have one of the one of the uh, martyrs who sings a hymn by himself, mm-hmm. where the other two the have end. passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mokichi, I believe is his name. Um, and the priest can only watch from like a distant hill. Like they, they can't, if, if they're exposed, they too will be caught and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So as the film continues and these priests don't manifest themselves, the persecution intensifies and doubts begin to sort of gnaw at these two priests. Mm-hmm. Like, what are they supposed to do? Like, should they leave? Well, if they leave, mm-hmm. Christianity will be extinguished as it were from Japan. Right. They can't abandon their flock, right? They're mm-hmm. priests. I mean, what, the, what, what kind of example would that set, right. right? 
But then an added complication is the fact that every time a Japanese Catholic is martyred, they're not only doing it for God. In fact, that comes into question mm -hmm. later in the film. But they're doing it to protect these priests. They won't right. give up their location. So there's right. a sense of like honor and sort of code here. Like they're not going to give up the priests. They would rather die. Yeah. So this is a, a matter of conscience now for sure. Rodriguez and Garupe. Like, what are they supposed to do? Are they supposed mm -hmm. to let these people die for them? Mm -hmm. um, and then there's like an additional question that's, that's frequently raised, whether it's through voiceover or dialogue. There's another question about like, well, what kind of world is this? Like what, mm -hmm. why, why does God allow this? Why is God silent mm -hmm. in the midst of all this suffering? Mm -hmm. So as things uh, sort of unfold, it's ultimately Rodriguez who has to deal with this problem in the most acute way. Garupe, true to his character, uh, mm -hmm. is more severe. He's also more decisive. Right. Um, there's a moment where some Japanese Christians are being drowned. Um, they're mm -hmm. wrapped in this mm -hmm. kind of, mm -hmm. um, what would you call it? I mean, like a straw kind of. Yeah, it's like wrap. a straight jacket. Yeah, so they right. can't move. And they and right. they just drop them into the ocean. Mm -hmm. uh, Garupe, seeing this horrifying act, runs into the ocean and drowns along with them. Because the point is, is that they're trying to break the priests right. That's by right. saying, by not killing them, but making them witness mm -hmm. the deaths of the Christians, saying, "This is your fault." Right. Yep. That's right. right. <laughs> And um, if you hadn't come, this wouldn't be happening. It's kind of like the mission, mm -hmm. same kind of thing. Yeah. And all you have to do is... Is just trample. Yeah. Right. So Rodriguez witnesses his friend die. It's, again, a very painful scene. They end up taking him uh, off to Nakazaki, where with the help of this uh, interpreter and then also the, the inquisitor, Inue, I'll come back to him mm -hmm. later, uh, he's sort of encouraged, like, listen, you've seen what can happen here. You've seen all these people are going to die. There's no point in it. Nobody's going to nobody's going to make ja Japan a Christian country. <laughs> like, you're just wasting it's your time. It's a swamp. Right. Yeah, bro. it's a swamp. It said that a number, number of times, which, by the way, it's not, it's not Scorsese's, you know, addition to the script. That's, Endo. that's Endo's, mm -hmm. uh, one of his consistent points in the novel. Um, and so, you know, Rodriguez sees much of the same thing at one point. Uh, one of his fellow prisoners is beheaded in this extremely Gosh. gruesome scene. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then ultimately, he, uh, he meets Ferreira, right, his, his teacher. And Ferreira basically says, look, you're wasting your time with these people. You know, like, like they don't even know what you mean by the Son of God. It's, it's, a, very, it's a really well-written and very thought-provoking scene about religious language and concepts and, like, how much do we really understand? I mean... What, what occurs to me is that it's not just true of like from one culture to the next, it's true within your own culture. And language. Yeah. It's like how much do people who are right. in mass or in church service actually follow the teachings, understand exactly mm -hmm. what it means. I, I suspect Pereira's point is wider in application than he thinks. Right. Because he, he has apostatized. Right. Yeah. And, and so right. where uh, Rodriguez meets him is at this temple, I guess a Buddhist temple right. or Shinto temple. I don't know. And, for his apostasies and become like, you know, he teaches them about astronomy and stuff like that. He's taken a wife. Mm. They made him take a wife of who is the widow of, I think, a martyred Christian. Right, you right. Know. Yeah, I think the, the important thing to note about Ferreira is that he's become a relativist, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's sort of like, well, you know, we believe, Christians believe in this and Buddhists believe in that. And like, and, what's the difference? And you who know? knows? Right. And who really knows? Right. I and mean, at the end of the day, like, there's a lot of smart people here and, you know, <laughs> The food is pretty good, you know, right? And so, Try the sushi. Right, right. right. So the, he sort of has, Ferreira has become a relativist. And 
And, you know, Rodriguez still believes, like, no, no, when the time comes, I will face the trials. But later that night, as predicted by Inouye, the Inquisitor, uh, when the, the, the sort of aristocratic shogunal authorities have devised this peculiarly painful torture device where they hang people upside down and they cut an incision behind their ear and the blood drops out just slowly enough that it doesn't kill them uh, very quickly. Um, Ferreira, I'm sorry, not Ferreira, excuse me, Rodriguez, accompanied by Ferreira, mm-hmm. apostatizes. He, right. he goes and he steps on the female. I'll come back to that scene in a minute because mm-hmm. I think it's a great scene. Then to wrap up the story's plot, there's a very lengthy coda, I'd say about yeah. 20 minutes or so. Yeah. It's really important, though, to, oh, to the absolutely. story. What we learn about uh, Rodriguez is that he and Ferreira ended up taking up kind of a position with the Japanese authorities. Uh, their, their job is to sort of confiscate Christian symbols and so on. Uh, they look for items, you know, people who have, are carrying illicit items into the country. Um, and of course, like Ferreira, he's now taken a wife. He's a former priest now. He's mm-hmm. no longer in any sort of way connected to the Catholic Church, at least on the outside, right? right. Um, but then we see his, his, uh, his, his, I guess, his funeral, right? Mm-hmm. We fast forward all the way to his funeral. And there's this really kind of powerful Buddhist oh. ceremony yeah. with this really haunting kind of music. And mm-hmm. um, he's, they, they, they take him out and they're going to cremate his body. And he's yeah. in a position. He's like in a... Like a tub. Um, like a, a tub. Yeah. And so he's like sitting. Mm-hmm. He's not lying down. He's sitting. Right. Which is, I think is important. No, yeah, yeah that's right. And uh, and Scorsese, it's, it's a brilliant way to end the film. He sort of, you go into the coffin as it's being lit up, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a glow emanating from below and you see this tiny crucifix in, in, his hands. in the hands of Rodriguez. That his wife has put there. His wife she, has placed she there. She snuck right? it in there. Right. Yeah. So she knew yeah. something was going on. Yeah. There, right. Okay. So, what? How, how do we deal with this story? All right. So, let me just say first of all, this is this to me is a kind of theological mind twister. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of complications, and, and there's a there's a richness to the story that allows, and this is mainly to Endo's credit. I mean, it's his story, mm-hmm. uh, but Scorsese does a great job in capturing all of this. And and there's there's so many different ways you can take it. I, I've watched it now several times, and I've always kind of come come away with a sort of slightly different feeling or different sense of emotion. Um, here's just a few thoughts. I, I don't claim these to be like a, a sort of exhaustive kind of summary of all the different ways we could look at this film, but a few thoughts. Okay, so first of all, you know, Scorsese does leave Rodriguez's character kind of in doubt. Is he a Christian or is he not, right? We see him refuse to hear Kichijiro's confession at the end. Um, does he, he has, refuse? Well, sort of, right? I mean, but he's, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't absolve him, correct? No, but yeah. he like, Praise with him. He does. There, yeah, exactly. He doesn't, like, well, toss he, him out. So exactly, right? There's. It's right? not clear what his yeah. his role is here, and this makes sure the film never becomes trite or grandiose in some way. It never becomes sort of like a, a clear apologetic for Christianity or Christian faith or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I think this is part. This is where I think form and content meet in this film because again, the title is silence, a word that comes from this, the Latin. Silere, which means to be quiet or still. Mm-hmm. And so the one who practices silence, right, is undergoing a kind of passivity, a passio, which is suffering, yes, but it's also, again, a stillness or a quiet. Um, and I think this is Scorsese, Indo as well. They, they, they kind of let you wrestle with the story, right? right? They're, they're not imposing a meaning on the story. 
Um, you could take it in different ways. It is, in fact, dedicated to the Christian martyrs of Japan. It is. So yeah. if you want to read it like that, I think that's totally valid. Mm -hmm. If you want to see it as a crisis of faith in the part of the priests or the struggles of the church, I think that's valid too. But th there is a kind of silence both within the film, but then also a silence no. of the filmmaker. Yeah. Right? I think there's a sense in which Scorsese doesn't dictate a particular reading of the film. Okay. Here's a tough question then, with all that in mind. Is the late Rodriguez closer to God right. than the early Rodriguez, mm -hmm. right? So early in the film, he is on fire for Christ. You know, he, he, he imagines, there's a really great scene where Scorsese kind of gets into the mind of his prayer life and mm -hmm. he's imagining Jesus, feed my lambs, right? Mm -hmm. This sort of thing. He wants to be like Jesus. So again, it reminds me a lot of this uh, Kierkegaard uh, essay on, on, on martyrdom that I mentioned earlier in, in your piece, Amy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he is seeking to be like Christ. But later in the story, he's stripped of everything. He right. is a failure. You know, he, he, he didn't, you know, he didn't liberate people. He didn't bring the gospel. He didn't live up to God's designs for him when he had the chance. He's a bad Christian. And yet he clutches to the crucifix, right? And right. here he is at the end of his life clutching to the crucifix. So whereas he once sought to imitate Christ, and this was kind of beautiful, but also kind of prideful. Now he's stripped of his pride and he is now, as it were, completely dependent on God's mercy. So which is better, right? right. Which, which is the truer version of Christianity? Is Rodriguez like a villain? Uh, or, you know, is he a villain juxtaposed to the heroes of the Japanese martyrs? Or is there something that kind of connects them in some way? Is there some kind of way that we can relate the two to one another? I'm going to leave that question hanging, but I think it's a really heavy, serious question. What do you think? Do you want to, any initial Well, I don't know. Are you going to talk about silence, the, like the word silence anymore? Because I don't want to like. Mm, not really. Okay. I don't think. All right. Yeah, so ahead. to me, that's like the crucial thing. I mean, the, the title of the work is silence. And this, this absolutely comes out of the movie is maybe more memorably put in the book in which the, kind of the, the through line of silence is indeed Rodriguez's relationship with the image, the mm, face of Christ. Yes. And at the beginning, he hears Christ talking to him mm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And then he slowly stops being able to hear Christ speaking to him. Right. Until the very end. Until he tramples. Until right. he tramples. Yeah. And he hears explicitly Christ saying, trample. Right. Yeah. So that's, to me, that's where people get like mad at this movie. Yeah. Is <laughs> I, and I'm going to come. I'm going okay, to come to that a little bit. That. Right? Okay. But you can go ahead. Now yeah, now. yeah. In yeah. that, in my mind, I mean, maybe I'll bring it up later. But it, in that, one of the questions that I think Endo is raising in this is: Does our cult, do our cultural barriers, the, the the differences, make it difficult to hear God in different cultures? Mm -hmm. You know, could is the reason Rodriguez is the reason he couldn't hear God. Okay, when he thought he heard God at mm. the beginning, was he really hearing God? Right. Or was he hearing his European kind of... We, know, we never know. We, we don't, don't know, know the end if he, hear, right. if he hears God either. Right. right. No, that's right. Okay, so and I'll, I'm going to come back to that a little bit too, so I'm not going to say more about that right now. But yeah, here's the other thing. So I've said silence is related to, to if you will, a passio, right? A mm -hmm. suffering. So... Who is the exemplar of this in the Christian tradition? It's Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. And I will say, the first time I read Endo's novel, this was my feeling. My, my feeling was that this, this novel is in love with Jesus yeah. right, in a lot of ways. It's about Jesus's 
Jesus's love for humanity that's so deep and profound that, that he would even suffer denial and apostasy, right? right? right. There, there's, there's, no, there's no limits to that love. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, you know, Jesus, right? Jesus is silent under persecution, Matthew 26, 63. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, was, uh, he allowed himself to be put to death on the cross. And I, it, makes, it always seemed to me that, that Endo's novel wants to, you know, really bring out what Jesus was about, right? And there's this, this quote, you just alluded to it. Mm-hmm. This is the, these are the words of Christ according to the novel, right? Trample. It was to be trampled on by men that I was born into this world. So in his abasement, Rodriguez comes to know the abasement of Christ, right? In a, in a far more intimate and real way than he had before when he was sort of, you might say, a kind of emissary of the triumphant Christ, Christus right. Victor, right? Yeah, right? Now he understands the militant Christ, the suffering Christ uh-huh. in a way. Uh-huh. Um, and he has truly come to understand the depths of God's humility and patience with human beings, you know? And, and as I said a second ago, I mean, this is why I think this work is ultimately, this film, but also the novel, is a movie that sort of, it, it comes up close to temptation and sin, but I think ultimately it's about, you know, it's an adoration of Jesus. Yeah. Um, the, the, not just the humanity of Jesus, but Jesus' willingness to suffer, his canonic willingness to suffer, you might say, mm-hmm. on behalf of other people. Um, and so, look, like you said, it, it's one of these things where, you know, people, um, people have criticized silence uh, for, uh, you know, lionizing potentially doubt and despair. Right, right. Um, and I think that there is reasonable, there's a reasonable concern there, right? Mm-hmm. Like as if doubt and despair are goods in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. But if you see it from the other perspective, right, of of it really glorifying Christ, patience, and love, despite our doubt and despair. And I've been reading uh, Ratzinger's Intro to Christianity again, because I'm going to talk about that in the other mm-hmm. podcast. Yeah. And he starts Intro to Christianity. He does, with a with, whole passage on there doubt. Is, there, yeah. You can't live in this world, if you're a believer, without undergoing some trial of doubt and despair. Right. Again, Kierkegaard makes this a huge linchpin of his theology. So I don't think that that this this novel, or, 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 or the, not the movie for that matter, is doing something that falls outside of orthodox Christian reflection on on And the on thing faith. is, Rodriguez doesn't do what he does. He doesn't trample for himself. Mm-hmm. He does it because other people are suffering. Right. And sure, maybe he's being manipulated. Yeah. But he does it because to alleviate the suffering of others. Right. That doesn't make him Christ, but it doesn't make him a doubt, you know, just like some um, you know, apostatizer and nothing more complicated than that. Correct. Right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, Ferreira actually points that out to him, right? I mean, yeah. Jesus would have trampled, as he says. Yeah. You know? um, and again, that he raises a huge doubt. I know yeah. there's some people like, no, he would not. No, he yeah. would not. And I don't know that the film really fully resolves that. I mean, that these right. words are coming from a somewhat unreliable narrator, we right. might say. Um, but nevertheless, I think it's fair to say that Rodriguez is called in a real pickle. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he's yeah, in yeah. a real pickle. Yeah. Right. And I and I think we might say, and I hate to put it in a kind of corny way, but like, yeah, Jesus understands our pickles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Basically, he yeah. understands the world right. binds. Right. And 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 you know, I think the movie is a testimony to again the mercy and love of Christ. Okay. Last point, and then we'll do the categories. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I I saw this film in January 2017 in Center City of Philadelphia. And I yeah. was kind of on a movie kick at the time. The kids were younger, I was going to see more movies in movie yeah. theater. And I had recently seen Manchester by the Sea. Uh, I've never seen it, but I know it's like super, super sad. Yeah, it? It's okay. 
I mean, the whole theater, except me, because I was kind of pissed off. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I felt like that that movie was was intended to make us feel disgusting about life and the world, really? and how unjust everything is and how wrong the world is. And and at first I was very touched by the story, but then yeah. there's, a, I won't give it away, but yeah. there's a there's a moment in the in the movie where you learn of the, the fate of one of these characters. Oh. And it's so brutal, so horrifying mm. that... For me, I was almost like, you're trying to pull my strings. Here. Yeah. You know, I felt yeah. a little manipulated by the filmmaker. It's a good movie. Yeah. But when the movie was over, everybody's crying. Oh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's so sad. And then this is in suburban Philadelphia in the middle. Yeah. Everybody, everybody's going and they just had their nice dinners and, you know, whatever. They're going to get cocktails afterwards. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, everybody's bawling. The movie ends. Boom. Everybody gets up and leaves. Yeah. All right. Then a few weeks later, I go to see Silence downtown Philadelphia at mm-hmm. a more artsy theater. I'm not saying that in itself makes it better, yeah. but it's a different crowd, mm-hmm. right? A smaller crowd, mm-hmm. not jam-packed, not by the not by the suburban shopping mall. Right. Um, more of an artsy crowd, very quiet throughout the film. Mm-hmm. The movie ends. We roll the credits. All we get are these crickets, noises, right. and the sounds of the ocean, and nobody moves for like. Really. It was almost like you felt peer pressure not to move. Wow. Nobody got up for like ten minutes. Wow. And I remember thinking. Scorsese nailed it. Like yeah. he nailed it. Like, uh, yeah. like, like, yes, it's not a perfect movie. I do uh-huh. think it's a little bit too long. There, there, there are, there, there are points at which I think some of the, the theological wrestling becomes almost redundant. Uh-huh. Um, but Scorsese, I think, in, captured what he intended to capture, which uh-huh. is this kind of contemplation on suffering, yes, but also on the nature of God and what Christianity wants to say about God's love for human beings. So, uh-huh. I, I've, I found it to be somewhat of an interesting anecdote. Um, okay, categories. All right, so uh, most humorous scene. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, there's a couple of like chuckle type scenes, yeah. right? Like so when the priests are trying to explain Christian concepts to some of the, right. the, the, the lay Japanese. I mean, there's a lot of sort of like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Right, you know, right. there's sort of that sort of thing. Uh, and I do think Kichijiro, this uh, uh-huh. kind of Judas figure, uh-huh. You know, he apostatizes so many times in the movie that it mm-hmm. gets to be kind of a joke. It's like, right, oh, there he goes running across the right. <laughs> running across the field again. Uh, but it doesn't end so funny for Kichijiro. No. Right. And yeah. maybe he's actually more of a believer than we thought. And I think that's a big, important point in the yeah, movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. And yeah. then most poignant scene. I, to me, it's the crucifixion at sea. Yeah. It's, it's, it is yeah. one of the, the most powerful religious depictions of martyrdom. I, I can't imagine any movie doing it more powerfully or more memorably than that. Right. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Okay. And most, um, if you had to watch one scene. Yeah. I think the, the entire sequence up to and including Rodriguez is trampling on the fumier, the icon yeah. at the end is really important. And I think, you know, Scorsese makes this really inspired, beautiful move to not only have the voiceover give us Jesus's words, which I read mm-hmm. earlier. Right. Um, but he has a flash cut to El Greco's The Veil of St. Veronica, which right. is a painting uh, from 1580. And it's it's stunning. I mean, it, it's mm-hmm. poignant, yes, but it also summarizes so much of, of what the film is about, I think. So that would be the one scene, I think. Okay, performance. 
Okay, so there are a lot of great performances. I mean, Garfield, despite his hair, apparently, <laughs> is pretty good. I, I tell you, the Adam Driver, uh, yeah. is, he may be the most talented actor going right now. Mm -hmm. He's certainly one of them. He's very good, too. But if, if there's the one guy you can't take your eyes off in this movie is Issei Ogata, right? He's a Japanese comedian. He plays Inoue, the Inquisitor. See, I was going to say that. I was going to yeah. say I would pick him. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, I mean, he is, he, he's, you know, you would expect this character to be, like, angry and, like, ready to just, like, kill people or something yeah. like that. But the way that, that uh, Ogata plays him is that he's sort of sardonic. Yes. And he's yes. sly. And he's, yes. a rel he's a deeply profound skeptic and relativist, mm -hmm. right? He's, he's a misogynist. Like, everything's a concubine. Everything's right. about men. He's, he's definitely invested in power, right? But, you know, what he does, he, instead of like, attacking Rodriguez, and which, which would have made Rodriguez kind of stand up and say, yes, yes. You know, kill me for the faith. Mm -hmm. He instead, in a, in a way that I think approximates the serpent from Genesis, he just he sort of undermines right. very subtly, very mm -hmm. casually. He just sort of nitpicks. There's that late in, that, in the film where he almost slithers over. Right. Did you yeah. notice yeah. that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's an amazing performance. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's good to hear. All right. Yeah. So then takeaway. Okay. So the ultimate takeaway for me comes from the voice of Jesus. Okay. And I'm going to read this quote again. I, I read some of this earlier, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it one more time because I think this is the whole summary of the film, but I think also of uh, Indo's novel. And again, this, these are the words of Jesus in the, in the book. Come ahead now. It's all right. Step on me. I understand your pain. I was born into this world to share men's pain. I carried this cross for your pain. Your life is with me now. Step. All right. Okay. That's it. That's silence. All right. Okay. I guess we're done for today. Huh? I guess we're done. All right. So we will be back yeah. next week with number six. six. And they will they keep. Well, yeah, I don't even remember. But anyway, <laughs> I got a Paul Thomas Anderson movie coming. I think we might be getting that. Oh, right. Yes. All right. right. Okay. All right. Everybody have See a good week. Time. We'll see you soon.